Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 15 uh, as we continue to go through uh, our big overview of, well, go through uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. We uh, see we've got a lot to be able to cover, and so it's helpful to be able to see where we have been and where we're going. Uh, but uh, last um, week we looked at uh, King Asa, who's uh, the third king in the king uh, Judah, which is the southern kingdom, Rehoboam, Abijah, and then uh, Asa. And Asa was a good king, as we saw. And uh, so now we move back uh, to the northern kingdom, uh, where King Jeroboam uh, was uh, and that's who we have focused at uh, up to this point in the northern kingdom. But we're going to look at uh, Nadab. And Nadab is uh, Jeroboam's son. And so we need to remember after coming back uh, to this period uh, in the northern kingdom, what we've, been, what we've kind of missed is we've gone back to the southern kingdom to be able to look at that time. We've got to remember what happened in uh, 1 Kings chapter 14, uh, verses 7 to 16 particularly. And uh, basically, we remember that uh, Jeroboam had a, a prophetic message come to him, uh, come to tell him that um, of the warning that's going to happen to his household because of what he had done. Uh, he, this prophet, uh, who is nameless, rebukes uh, Jeroboam, uh, it, it rebukes him that God had raised him up into this position of uh, power and placed him here, and yet he has acted foolishly. He did not walk in the ways of David, as was told in earlier in First Kings, and uh, he acted wickedly. He created idols, uh, set up false uh, temples for them, leading Israel to be able to sin, provoking the Lord to anger. Uh, he's punished for this idolatry. And God declares that he will bring a disaster upon all of Jeroboam's house. All of Jeroboam's descendants will be cut off, both male and female, and the dogs and the birds will devour them uh, inside the city gates and outside the city gates. There was one uh, good outcome of this prophecy, as you remember, that Jeroboam sends his wife to be able to go confront this uh, prophet here. And, uh, and, Going there, uh, the son in who's six, Abijah, a sick who is Abijah, um, uh, is actually spared. Uh, God saw something good in him, as we saw, and uh, he was the only one that was granted this proper burial. Uh, the only one in all of Jeroboam's household that was pleasing to the Lord. So, and God told that he would raise up a future king to be able to take the throne from Jeroboam and, uh, and because of the consequence of him setting up all these false uh, practices. Um, and ultimately, Israel will face exile and uh, captivity. So we ended with Jeroboam's reign after Jeroboam dies. Abijah uh, passed away before Jeroboam does, and Jeroboam is buried with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigns in his place. And what we see in this, this week is exactly what was prophesied before. That we see uh, God's promises come through sinful men, as we saw last week with Asa 
and uh, his reign, even though he had a heart after God, uh, God still fulfills his promises, even though Asa was not perfect. And in this week, we see the exact same reality, that God carries out his prophecies and promises, his providence in judgment, that God had warned the house of Jeroboam and, and told them what would happen. So here we see God fulfill his promise. Now, previously we see God fulfill his promise in a positive way, in a positive promise. And this you might say, God is fulfilling exactly what he said, his word. Just uh, it's not so positive. It's not so uplifting. A uh, promise to punish, a promise to destroy. Same principle as we saw last week is at work in this week's as well. That God carries us out through sinners. Um, and this is, this is helpful. I think it's helpful in many aspects of our life uh, for us to be able to see God's hand at work in the good and the bad. Uh, it's helpful, I think, uh, particularly in a year like this, an election year, as people start talking about uh, who's going to sit in the Oval Office and why the other person shouldn't be there, uh, or all of the different various things. You think about all the primaries and the votes cast and and the ballots and how they end up and the tallies and, and uh, the counting and all of these different processes. And in all of this, sinners are at work at all of them. Not to be able to try and say positive or negative of this, but it's true. They're all sinners. And even in a positive uh, cycle, when uh, your person gets in, you it's the work of God's hand. And even when your person does not get in, that we see it's still God's work at hand. That the proverb, author of Proverbs says, a lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. That nothing comes by chance. Uh, we love to be able to celebrate things like Groundhog Day, but uh, that uh, Groundhog has no effect on the weather. Uh, there is no outcome that this Groundhog can predict. Um, he does not change the season. He does not uh, fill out forms. The Bible says that it's not a groundhog that does this. It says that God is the one that changes times. Uh, we all try and do it at daylight savings, right? And we, we leave the hard things like our car clock just out of the way and just uh, don't change that. But here we're told that here God changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And so we see God at work in all of this, even a passage like tonight, where the psalmist writes, for not, the, for not from east, from the, west, the east or from the west or not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but God, uh, it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And we see passages like this, as we're going to see tonight. We need to be reminded of all of these principles of God's providence, His plan, as we see that this all comes to as a prophecy from God in chapter 14, verse 14. The Lord will raise up for Himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. The Lord is going to raise up this king. I want you to remember that as we continue to go through this week, uh, this week's study, because it's important that here God's hands at work 
to be able to bring this about. Or even Jeroboam. Jeroboam is a king that God raised up to be able to deliver judgment onto the house of David, uh, basically because of Solomon's practices. And so we see all of this come uh, to fruition through Jeroboam, and we find out Jeroboam is a wicked king that God raised up. So tonight's passage, we see this king that God raises up, that he said he would raise up. But this king that God raises up is also not like David. We saw David come and replace Saul. We, we, that, that makes sense to us, right? God raises up a king like David, a good king, to replace an evil king. Well, in this case, we see that God raises up a wicked king to replace a wicked king. God replaces Jeroboam's house with another king who follows Jeroboam's sin and folly. So let's see how this happens following Jeroboam's reign. We'll begin in verse 25 and 26. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel for two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. So Asa is one of those uh, kings who has a, um, uh, a long reign. He reigns 41 years. Um, so uh, often we'll, we'll be coming back to this long period of time of Asa's reign. And so here Nadab begins at the very early stages of that in the second year of Asa. Uh, but Nadab actually does not reign a very long time. He only reigns two years. So you have Asa with a long reign and then Nadab here with a short reign here. And uh, we find out even in the short reign that uh, we're able to see what type of reign it was. That he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he, he made Israel to sin. So we need to continually come back to what is Jeroboam's sin. What is it that particularly... The, the kings that follow, because time and time again, Jeroboam sets it up, but all these other kings are related back to this sin of Jeroboam. Just as David's heart is um, lifted up and said, this is the, the ultimate type of heart we're looking for in a king, so to Jeroboam, sin is used as an example here. So you might say it's divided up into three main parts, the, the building of the golden calves. He builds these golden calves for people to be able to worship them. Um, to stop them going down to, to Israel to be able to go to Rehoboam, uh, king in the southern kingdom of Judah. So he sets up these golden calves in Dan and Bethel. Uh, the second is the establishment of alternate worship methods and centers. So not only did he create these golden calves, but he set some up in, in Dan and Bethel for people to be able to go and worship there, um, anointing. Uh, appointing his own priests that weren't from the tribe of of Levi. So again, he's he's moving away from God's prescribed uh, worship at Jerusalem, uh, direct violation of any of God's commands. But interestingly, he sets up new priests, and then, you think about this, he calls one of his sons Nadab. Nadab and Abihu in the story of Exodus 
and, uh, and Aaron's son. Interesting, that's the name that you choose to be able to do that. Um, and they end up making their own worship, offering these strained fire to God and then dying because of this. And yet he calls his son Nadab, just an interesting point. And then this institution of these, these new religious festivals, um, similar to the ones that they celebrated uh, before, the ones prescribed by God, but yet with a new twist, new times, uh, new calendar. So uh, there are three main things, but more specifically, what would we say is uh, his sin? Uh, in First Kings chapter 14, verse 9, it says, But you have done evil above all who before you, and have gone and made yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and cast me behind your back. We uh, unpacked this a little bit there, but uh, when we studied this, but here, the, the main thing that provokes him to anger is the making of idols. I think quite specifically, what commandment is Jeroboam breaking? I think we've tried to reiterate this sin that Jeroboam continually uh, does is actually a violation of the second commandment. The Westminster Shorter Catechism explains it this way. What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or by any uh, way not appointed in his word. And I think that summarizes and encapsulates what Jeroboam's sin is. And as we continually come back to and they sinned or they continue to sin in the way of Jeroboam, their father, then we see this pattern of this second commandment violation that continues. The making of images, the establishing of their own priests and uh, temples, the establishment of um, their own calendar. They're worshiping uh, God in a way that's not appointed in his word. So what happens? He does evil in the sight of the Lord. So what happens in verse 27? A huge change there. And Bashar, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, uh, conspired against him. And Bashar struck him down at Gipithion, uh, which belonged to the Philistines. For Nadab and all of Israel were laying siege to Gipithion. So we've met uh, Bashar before, uh, just again in this passing comment earlier in, in chapter 19 where uh, here Asa is going to be able to go, and he, the, um, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, had made a, a, an alliance with uh, Bashar down up in Israel, and, and Asa goes to him and, and says, break your covenant with Bashar, um, and we just passing comment. But now we're getting to the, the how did Bashar actually become king of Israel? And so Bashar is the, the tribe of Issachar. We don't really hear much about Issachar. Uh, he's Leah's fifth child out of her six. Issachar and Nebulon, uh, Naphtali are, are together. Uh, in uh, First Chronicles, they're uh, a group, a tribe that came along and helped with uh, King David uh, when he was seeking to be able to come and uh, fight for the throne that they came and they, they offered his support. Uh, these mighty men who sided with David. They also sided with uh, Deborah and Barak in Judges chapter 5. Uh, but really, we don't have a lot to be able to know about their uh, tribe or their um, anything about it. But here, uh, Bashar comes and he conspires against uh, Nadab, Jeroboam's son. And uh, 
is this term used to be able to conspire is used to be able to go behind king's backs. Uh, Saul actually accuses David of doing this um, in Second uh, Samuel, and he and he basically said that you're doing this, you know, you're conspiring behind my back. You're you're trying to harm me and take my throne from me. Now this obviously was an accusation that Saul had had made against uh, here. Uh, with uh, Jonathan and David's um, uh, covenant that they made with one another. A hit of hell is used to be able to, he's conspiring with Absalom. Uh, when David finds out about this, that a hit of hell goes and, and uh, teams up with uh, Absalom. And so he's, he's conspiring uh, to be able to do this. But here, Bashah goes and conspires behind uh, Nadab's back and is uh, eventually killed by Bashah. Uh, that here uh, he comes down to Gipthion, uh, which belongs to the Philistines, and uh, comes and tries to take them over. Now this is an interesting place that actually will come up time and time again, and, and it would almost be centered as this is the, the place where you get assassinated you know, assassinate it. Like, this is the place. Don't go down there if you're a king, basically. Uh, nothing good is really going to happen there. But uh, Gibtheon was a, a part of the tribe of Dan, taken over by the Philistines at some point. Um, now, it's interesting that we're not told much about the Philistines during this period of time. David really conquers them uh, during his, his reign. He, he makes an alliance with them, in some cases in Gath and places like that, but it doesn't seem that they're, they're a huge impact uh, or political sphere during this time. They were mentioned a couple of times here or there. Um, I couldn't really find any conclusive facts about this. Uh, maybe they're smaller, they're more content now. Uh, they've, they've, they've moved into maybe more seafaring uh, battles, and so therefore, um, you know, it's hard to be able to say for sure, but but they still exist, and uh, <clears throat> but the only factor is that might help us understand this this political situation at this time is that here Israel is besieging them, and often the stronger nation often will try and besiege a, a weaker nation. There's no point in besieging a city or town if you are a weaker nation. It takes a lot of resources and time and energy. Uh, to be able to do this, to be able to uh, lock people in that they can't come out. Um, so uh, just an interesting thing to be able to think about when we uh, read through and hear about the Philistines. But uh, here in uh, verses 28 and 30, we see uh, here Bashah come. So Bashah killed him in the third year of Asa king of Judah and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam none, not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoke, that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned, and that he was made that he made Israel to sin, and because of the anger which to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. So Bashar kills Nadab, uh, the king of Israel, uh, takes his throne. Interesting pattern that you will see, and as you see the pattern, where two kings into the kingdom of Israel, how did um, 
Jeroboam get the throne? Well, he got the throne because uh, the Lord um, did this. He set this up. But what we see is that now this bloodshed is, is a way that the throne rotates in the northern kingdom. Never always through the same family line that you, you have a kingdom that is, is starts with a split and continues to, to split and continues to fight for power. Now, verse 29 should really make us uh, sit up in our seats and wonder how can a verse like this appear in our Bibles? Verse 29 explains that as soon as he was king, he killed all of the house of Jeroboam. He left the house of Jeroboam, not, not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. There's a sense of urgency here in this verse. Uh, Bashah kills Nadab, and almost instantly, as soon as he was king, like a switch, he, he goes through and eliminates all the house of Jeroboam. It's common in this time to be able to do this. You want to be able to take out all your threats. You know, no one worse uh, in your kingdom than a very upset uh, family member. And considering that people might have some ties or connections to previous past kings, then uh, it would be quite easy for them to be able to um, create some army to fight against you. Uh, you show your power and your, um, your might uh, to other people, do not mess with me. You know, there's, there's no mercy. Eliminate your threats. Um, you know, the people who want to kill you back can't kill you because you got them first. And uh, revenge is often the foundation to some epic plot as we think and consider how that happens in many books that we read. And so too it's true in real life that revenge often uh, comes in the form of of um, brutal murder. But here, the author wants to make sure that we understand what is happening here. The author does not only want to be able to show us that Bashar killed Nadab. Not only to be able to show us the urgency in which he does it. He, he shows the brutality of it, that no one breathes. No one from Jeroboam's house. Quickly and brutally, Bashar wiped out the whole house of Jeroboam. But again, if we read history books, this is not an uncommon thing for us to be able to understand or see. This is nothing new. This isn't the most brutal anyone has ever done. Uh, happened. Nations have stories like this all the time. However, I think the surprising thing about verse 29 should not be the first portion, but the second. That all of this happened according to the word of the Lord. We, we heard what was going to happen. We were warned about what was going to happen. Back in chapter 14. That I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off the, from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up the dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. 
but it doesn't seem that disconnected. God says it is going to happen, and yet we see it comes, come exactly by the hands of God. That specifically in verse 10, it says that I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam. But yet what we see in chapter 15 is it comes through the hand of Bashar, a wicked, evil king. But the prophecy says God is going to be able to do this. God is doing this. Or specifically in verse 14, where God says that I, the Lord, will raise up for himself a king over Israel who should cut off the house of Jeroboam. And who is that king that God has to do this? Bashar establishes the throne of Bashar in the kingdom of Israel. Again, we can understand in our minds how God can go from Saul to David. How God can use that moment to be able to raise up a king after his own heart. But here, God raises up Bashar to be able to king the house of Jeroboam to eliminate them, to judge them. It's not a step up. Actually, what we will see is what happens is this is a spiral that continues to go in all of the kingdom of Israel. Well, how can this be? Well, let's clarify two points. There is a great difference between the Lord's sinning and the Lord through his providence and sovereignty using sin to be able to carry out his means. One is heretical, the other is biblical. To be able to say first that the Lord sins is, is heretical. Because this is false. The Bible clearly teaches us that God does not sin. John says in John 1.5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Deuteronomy 32 says that his work is perfect and all of his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Habakkuk says that you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Here Habakkuk's complaint is, 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 is based upon who God is, that God's eyes are pure, that he cannot look at wrong. Or in Hebrews chapter 6, so that by two unchangeable things it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Here God cannot even lie. You know, what we would call little white sins of little white lies or whatever. And here it's impossible for God to lie because he is utterly unable to be able to do it because of his, who he is. But the second, which is the biblical understanding, is that it is that God 
then is not limited to be able to only use perfect people to be able to carry out his plans. He is sovereign over all things, and he ordains everything that shall come to pass. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. Although in relation to foreknowledge and the decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. Yet by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So what does this mean? It, it, it begins with God, with God's decree that he is the primary and first cause of all events and actions in all of this world. His divine will of his decrees is the ultimate source of everything that occurs. But there are in this world secondary causes. That are secondary means that God employs to be able to bring about his will. Instead of working directly in every single instance... God often established processes, human choices, natural laws, various means to be able to accomplish his purposes. Let's for a sake try and put it away from murder. Um, it's a difficult topic for us to be able to discuss, but let's consider something like growing crops. God is the primary cause of the growth. Who causes the seed to exist? Well, it's God. Who causes the sun to be able to shine? Well, it's God. Who causes the rain to be able to fall? Well, it's God. Who causes the, the earth to be able to be what it is? And the, all of these factors and so it is God as the first cause, but there are all these secondary causes that God uses to be able to bring about his cause. So in the same is true in this world when it comes outside of merely just growing a crop. That he is placed in all these things, these processes, these human choices, natural laws. All of these are to be able to carry about his purposes. And what this then we find is this, this good balance of how we understand and read through the Bible. We see a God who is sovereign as we understand as you read through the scriptures, even a passage like this, that is God who does all of, is sovereign over all of this, but we also have the balance of human responsibility. That this second causes maintains this balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. While God is still in control of all things, individuals are accountable for their own actions. God's providence does not eliminate, eliminate human agency or the consequences of those personal choices. Actually, they're things that God continues to use as secondary means. And so in, in 1 Kings chapter 15, we see God as the primary cause this prophecy, his judgment upon the house of Jeroboam. And Bashah is the secondary cause in which God uses to be able to bring about his 
means. So God does not put in Bashar's heart that this is what he needs to be able to do. All of this stems from Bashar's sinful heart. Bashar seeks and wants and desires to be able to kill Nadab. It's his own sin. And God is sovereign over all of it. Again, when we think about this, we see it throughout all of the pages of Scripture. Cyrus, God uses Cyrus to be able to uh, carry about his means. This is what he says of Cyrus. He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Again, Cyrus is, is not the example you want to be able to put up and say, Hey, children, let's be like this king here. But yet yeah, is the king at this time that God uses to be able to carry about his purposes. Whereas we read before in Psalm 75. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And we see this time and time again. He will raise up another king, but that does not mean that this is finished. That that king can be evil as well. And God will judge that king for the evil that they do. Again, we'll continue to see here at Bashar. And next uh, time in chapter 16, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over the people of Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people sin, Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins. Although we switch DNA bloodlines of these kings, he shares the same spiritual tree. He's exactly like Jeroboam. He's exactly like the son of Jeroboam. He's exactly like the son of the serpent. Now let's end by seeing this in the time of Jesus. In a truth that we confess every single week as we go through the Apostles' Creed, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Again, you think about all the things that God set in place to be able to carry about his, carry about his means and purposes. Here, Pilate thought that he could wash his hands of what happened thinking merely that there was no human responsibility on his part if he washed his hands. But that's not the truth. In Acts 2, they end by explaining the men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here you see God's sovereignty, God's definite plan, His foreknowledge, and yet who is responsible for the death of Christ? It is through these hands of lawless men, these people who crucified Him. And you think about who sits on the throne at any point in history, and God places them there. Even during the time when Jesus is reigning, one of the most notorious uh, 
families of Herod between Jesus' early ministry and his his and the early church. It would be easy for God to be able to appoint some peaceful king who is favorable for the expansion of his kingdom. Or even, it's not possible, but even a neutral king, right, who doesn't care what is going on. But you think about almost all the New Testament is written underneath a time when you see Herod's family reigning. You see all of this here. Herod the Great, right before Jesus was born and during his early life. He's, he's known for ordering this enormous massacre of children because he hears of Christ's birth in Bethlehem. Herod Antipas, he's the son of Herod the Great. He rules over Galilee during the time of Jesus' ministry. He's the one who beheaded John the Baptist. And Herod Antipas is the one who's involved in Jesus' trial as Pilate says, well, he's not in my jurisdiction. Or Herodias, the the wife of Herod Antipas, is the one who asked for John the Baptist's head, all because he was rebuking them for their marriage. Or Salome, the daughter of Herodias, the one that danced before um, Herod and asked, played a part in asking for John the Baptist's head. She did not have to do that, exactly what her mother said. And yet that's what happened. Herod Agrippa I, in the early, uh, the early time of the church, the grandson of Herod the Great, Mentioned in the book of Acts, he's, he's responsible for the execution of James, the brother of John. He also imprisoned Peter. Peter miraculously escaped. Bernice, the sister of Herod Agrippa I, she plays a role later in Acts. Herod Agrippa II, he played a role in a conflict in the early church. He hears uh, Apostle Paul's defense in Acts chapter 25. Although he's sympathetic to Paul's situation, all of these kings and all of these rulers in this time are placed there by God to be able to carry out all his definite foreknowledge and plan. And who are they? Again, they're wicked. Opposed to God, opposed to his church, and yet it's still underneath God's plan. And so, we end with Nadab, verse 31 and 32. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the books of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? There was war between Asa and Bashah, king of Israel, all their days. So we see conflict that begins in Bashar's reign and conflict that continues throughout all of Bashar's reign. But above all, we see God's hand at work, even through the work and uh, even through these wicked men. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.